This program is brought to you by the Provost Teaching Fellows at the University of Texas at Austin. Great. Okay, we are we are recording. <laughs> we got it. We got I it. I a call a little earlier today. Either a bird flew directly into my window or someone, you know, threw like a water balloon. But it's like, what? <laughs> what was that? It's a bird. It's a plane. I saw you jump. Yeah. It's like, and I cursed also. It was not good. <laughs> Would you prefer to be referred to as Provost Wood in our conversation? I'll tell you what, why don't you do it the first time? And after that, let's go with Sharon. Who we are as people. Who we are as teachers. Like I say, every four years I'm popping. I'm a military kid in the Air Force brand. I also write fiction and do other crazy stuff. Creativity is imbued in every single thing I do. I came here to be an aerospace engineer. How did you get interested in politics? Uh, I'm sorry, Stephanie. That's really none of anybody's business. <laughs> We're all steeped in the same tea. Welcome to the other side of campus. Jen Moon. I'm a professor of instruction in the College of Natural Sciences. And I'm Stephanie seidel Holmston, associate professor of instruction in the College of Liberal Arts. Today, we are welcoming Provost Sharon Wood to the conversation. Provost Wood began serving as executive vice president and provost at the University of Texas at Austin on July 19th, 2021. What a time to lead a major university July 2021. As the university's chief academic officer, she leads strategic planning for the university's academic mission and ensures academic programs are world-class and aligned with the university's commitment to diversity and equity. Even though she just began this work recently, she's not new to UT. Previously, Dr. Wood served as the dean of the Cockrell School of Engineering since September 2014. And prior to her appointment as dean, Provost Wood served as the chair of the school's Department of Civil, Architectural, and Environmental Engineering for five years. For one year, she was director of the Ferguson Structural Engineering Laboratory, one of the nation's leading research centers in the large-scale study of the behavior of buildings, bridges, and structural components. She joined the Cockrell School faculty in 1996. Welcome, Provost Wood. It's good to have you. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. So your early work was in structural engineering, and I have to tell you that I taught study abroad in Santiago, Chile, and I distinctly remember my first night sleeping in Santiago. I woke up in the middle of the night with the bed shaking. I thought that there was somebody pulling that bed back and forth, and the shaking stopped as quickly as it started. I figured I was having a massive stress dream. Turns out, it was an earthquake. You think about earthquakes. Tell me a bit about your research and what drew you to structural engineering. So first, let me talk a little bit about Chile because I also spent some time there. My first research project as an assistant professor was looking at what happened in uh, Viña del Mar and Valparaiso in Chile in the 1985 earthquake. And so I have very similar experience of being in bed and feeling the building move. But perhaps the most interesting one was we were touring a lot of buildings that had been damaged by the earthquake and were also, there was reconstruction going on or renovation going on. Very detailed. We were on the top of one of the buildings, maybe on the 11th floor, and an earthquake hit and all the workers just started screaming. <laughs> so you had not only the building moving, but the, you know, all the workers kind of yelling and expressing their discontent. Um, so it was a very traumatic experience. <laughs> 
you asked about how I became a structural engineer. It is part of my family's tradition. I am a fourth generation civil engineer. So my, uh, my dad was in construction in New Jersey where I grew up. And when I was about eight years old, he took me out to a construction site and I got to walk around and walk on these steel beams. And I felt it was almost like a gym, huge gymnastics setup, right? I thought it was so much fun to walk around. So not knowing anything, I just decided then I was going to be an engineer like my dad. What's really interesting is when you talk to many women who are my age, they had really similar experiences, right? They, they decided to become an engineer because a close family member was an engineer, most likely their dad. And then they, they just followed in their family's footsteps. So I have my dad and I have some great conversations about that. Wow, that is really fascinating. Interesting, that family tradition. I was thinking about, you know, we know that practicing in a field is quite different than teaching in that field. What aspects of teaching were important to you to communicate to your students? In other words, what aspects of engineering was an important thing to convey, like the energy that you got from it, the the satisfaction of the work? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I think I taught mainly courses related to design of concrete buildings maybe some structural analysis and also an earthquake engineering class. And I think that the approaches were a little different in all of them. The the structural engineering was really a a lot of just detailed equations, doing a lot of problem solving, right? And the students had to learn how to do different techniques. So that probably was the most challenging just because you could see some of the students just getting bored, right? And you had to come up with ways to excite them and show them what, how, what they were learning on this really small beam or truss could be translated to a skyscraper or a large bridge. I think the the concrete building or the concrete design was the class that I probably taught the most over my entire career. And there, it was important to talk about how, how the um, design procedures, um, they call it a building code, how those were developed and how we learn from failures and make changes so that we could ensure that future buildings will behave better than, than the ones in the past. And so I know I would have a lot of slides that would either be stuff we had tested in the laboratory or maybe examples of structures that had failed to, to really try to talk about the importance. And I think the, the other thing that was you tried to emphasize is the, the building code is a minimum standard. And so you need to think that think about beyond that, right? You might, and make sure that the student is thinking about the entire structure and not just one single component. So what, what helped me tremendously in that was I was um, active in professional societies where both practicing engineers and educators would, would have the opportunity to talk. And so I, I really learned a lot from, even though I never... Uh, practiced as a structural engineer, I had learned the op- I got to learn from people who were and the examples that they were using. And so I tried to bring that back into the classroom. The earthquake engineering one, again, you, you show damage. Damage excites people. Buildings have collapsed. It's impacted people's lives, but it was fun to see, right? Because you get to see engineering or structural engineering straight up. But I think there again, it is really how are you helping to protect the society? I think that's the main reason we're studying this. And how, as as our knowledge expands, how does that filter back into these building codes and our agreements with society over how things should be designed? 
you know, that sense that's so interesting, Sharon, about the community, right? So we have engineering, math problems, I imagine, but it's situated in a community. How do you help students sort of tap into that sense of the purpose of what they're building for, that sort of common good? That is a great question. And I think that is probably the the thing that makes civil engineering unique among the disciplines, right? Is that we're building things that people are going to use for decades, maybe hundreds of years. And so making sure that the, the structures are durable and usable, and if they do have a problem, they can be repaired, right? So that, that is very different than, um, you know, if you look at your iPhone, right? What, what, this is absolutely phenomenal technology, but we all know that within four years, we're going to replace it because we want the latest state of the art. So there's a, you know, there's a huge variation in engineering of, of what the perspective is. There are these stories about, um, you know, builders in ancient times would have to stand under their bridge and have traffic go over it to prove that they had faith that it could carry the load it was intended to carry. And if it collapsed, they would be killed in that bridge, right? And so that's why it is a very different commitment that you're, you're trying to teach the students about that everyone is using their structures, whether they're building houses or, you know, apartments, uh, office buildings, bridges. It, it just, it, it, that public commitment is really important. And to be very honest, that's why, you know, um, 9-11 was a very, very, the 20th anniversary. That was a really challenging time for me because putting aside all the political things, people went running into that building to try to save people and then it, the building ended up collapsing. So structural engineering wise, the fact that it stayed, the Twin Towers stayed up for about an hour was phenomenal, but the death toll was just, was just devastating. They had actually designed the buildings to four planes. They, they were, were worried about the risk of planes hitting the buildings because LaGuardia Airport is very close. The trouble is the, the planes they designed for were like 707s, much, much smaller than what actually hit. And they also assumed that the plane would be landing in LaGuardia so it wouldn't have a full tank of gas. So the planes were heavier, plus they had all the combustible materials. So it's, it, you know, these are the types of things where you, you can get students engaged when you can talk about, okay, what did the engineers think about at the time? They were doing cutting edge work. The, the Twin Towers were absolutely incredible structures. But then you look at it from you look at it from decades later when you have a different perspective and you see, oh, I really need to be thinking outside the box with these really significant structures because they ha- do have to last for decades, for, for hundreds of years. As you're talking about this experience, I was thinking so much about how when we think about designing a great class, all of these elements that you mentioned would be present. So I was thinking about, you're talking about problem solving, asking students to like disentangle a difficult problem and work through stepwise and try to think logically how you might approach a problem. You mentioned essentially experiential learning, talking to people who are practicing in the field and getting some experience from the field of like, what does this feel like to be, you know, a a participant in this field? You talked about accountability for yourself and how you think about how your work affects other people. Talked about relatability, looking at real examples in your life, such as, as you mentioned, the Twin Towers and how that influences how you might think about building structure and what went into that. And 
using that real life example. And then finally, the idea of reflection and improvement. So you said, you know, we, we do these test cases, we do these demos to think about, okay, let's set this up. And now how does this fare in a particular environment? And what can we learn from it? Either from real life experience, hopefully not, because that would mean the building's not working or, you know, a test case kind of situation. And all of these elements, I think, make for just an extraordinary class where you're actually practicing. You're not, you're beyond just sort of hearing stuff and regurgitating, but you're actually practicing and working and really getting in there with the difficult nature of, of real work. You know, it's not, it's not a black and white answer. No, that's right. And I think when you talk about structural engineering, you've also got to throw in the, the added thing of cost. Because for, for many things, if you talk about like a public bridge, we're usually trying to bring it in at a low cost because we're spending public money on this. Uh, so constraints are, are another part of the challenge. Absolutely. Yeah. Operating within those constraints. Right. Yeah. It, you know, it strikes me following your career now is, you know, we talked about your work as a, as a faculty member transitioning into chair of your department and dean and so forth. I'm thinking now about how all of this awareness of kind of problem solving and, and that kind of thing might have informed how you just operate on sort of an administrative level. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Like what, what have you pulled from your experience as an engineer into your administrative roles? No, I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, problem solving skills are the things that I rely on every day. And I don't, I can't remember the last time I used an equation to solve a structural engineering problem, <laughs> right? But I still have to solve problems every day. That's what, that's what excites me about the job. I think the, um, as, as I move through my administrative career, the nature of the problems continues to change and the, um, the scope gets bigger, more people are involved, but that's, yeah, that, that is the biggest thing I think I've t- brought to it. Sharon, I'd love to hear more about that. So, you know, as Jen and I were looking forward to this conversation, we noted that you were a chair and then a dean and now a provost. How did your work change from one to the next? So I think, I think one of the biggest things is the people who are impacted by your decisions. When you're a department chair, you know everyone in your department you know something about them. You know the classes they teach, where they where they grew up, how many, if they're, you know, how large their family is. You you have that personal information. As you move up to dean, um, at least in in the engineering school here, with three hundred faculty members roughly, there's no way that you can know that that information about them. You probably know most people's names. You can probably say hi and recognize them, but it's at the limit of you. You don't remember exactly all the details of what they're working on. And now there's absolutely no way that I can understand all the, all the faculty in the, the entire university. So I think that it, it becomes more abstract, but my, um, I'll go back to my serving the public, right? The, the, as a structural engineer, I want to try to build the system or the, the physical structure or now the, the systems that will support the society I think that same theme has gone through the whole way. It just becomes um, less connected with them. So, I mean, Stephanie, I met you for the first time a couple of weeks ago, right? And so we, and Jen also. So um, I have the opportunity to meet more people and broaden my perspective, but still I'm only touching on a very small fraction of the number of faculty here at UT. What skill set would you say you draw on as a provost? 
from all of these experiences, right? Engineering, in the classroom, chair, dean. Yeah, so I think, I mean, the things that I've learned is I have to listen. And I'll be honest, sometimes it's really hard to listen, um, especially with COVID. There are a number of opinions and I don't necessarily want to hear. I'd love for people to say, hey, you're doing a great job. That doesn't happen right now, (laughs) right? The people who are upset are the ones who are going to be expressing their frustration to me. And I need to somehow separate So me personally, from my decision making and say, you know, you're right, I need to do a better job of addressing that concern to help the faculty. Because I know that if one person is writing to me expressing their frustration, there are hundreds of others across campus who have that same feeling. They just don't feel comfortable coming to me directly. So listening is really important. I think problem solving becomes important because, as I mentioned, when I knew everyone in the department, someone came with a problem, I knew exactly who to go to to solve the problem. Now they're much larger problems and involve many more people. And so trying to find the people who can make a difference is challenging. And I think the other thing is just as you move, as you move up in a large organization and it becomes so many different perspectives, you have to get input from more people. So I think those are things that, and this goes back to my my service in the American Concrete Institute, trying to build consensus is, is something that I think um, the importance of that has only been highlighted as I've moved through in my career as an administrator. You know, what I'm just always struck by when I hear those skills listed is that's not what my PhD is in, right? <laughs> no, right. <laughs> you know, how do we sort of hone and practice those skills. And I suppose we do it in some ways in the classroom as we listen to our students and attempt to sort of model, as we were talking about before, failing and learning from failure. And we sort of bring that with us all along the way, but we don't get trained in it so much. We don't get trained in it. And, you know, we, you and I, Stephanie, had the conversation about a week ago right, about how we have to learn, how as teachers, we have to learn from our students. We have to adjust the way we're teaching to try new things to see if that better resonates with students. Because the goal for everyone here, right, is we want to educate our students. And we want, we don't want them to be frustrated. We want them to feel as if we're listening to them as teachers. So yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. This was not, it's definitely not addressed in my dissertation. None of these skills. Right. And it makes me think also one of the things kind of been a theme in these interviews that we've been doing is many people will talk about this idea that, you you know, you bring your entire self to a job. You can't do otherwise. You are who you are. Right. And so the tension there is while you bring and I'm going to use my own example, like so I bring myself to be in the classroom with my students. My students see a teacher. (laughs) They see one thing. Right. And they have expectations about how that thing's going to happen. And so you're right. Like sometimes we receive feedback. It's hard to, at least at first anyway, to think about that as like they're responding to the position. They're not responding to you personally. And to try to, and I'm thinking about myself here when I talk, keeping one's ego out of it. Right. You know, it, it strikes me too. And I imagine in your position as well, I'm sure of it. That, you know, we all have this experience as an instructor where you ask for feedback about a particular thing you're doing and you'll get exactly 50% saying it's great and 50% saying it's the worst thing ever. And then where do you go from there? 
<laughs> so these problems are like just, you know, it's hard. building consensus can be really tough if, you know, you're getting all this feedback that's completely opposite. <laughs> right. So I'm going to go back to my experience with building codes. And this is an arduous process, right? It, it's you develop a change proposal. It's written or like 50 people on a committee who all vote on it and they all write their comments down. And then you have to respond in writing to every single comment. And I think what I learned from that is to try to understand if I could figure out why they were making the comment, the source of the comment, then I could address it or find or say, wait a minute, we have it. You, oh, you misunderstood this. Let me go and go back and change it. Now, writing is different because you have time. Whereas teaching is you're live in teaching and it you're trying to engage the classroom. So you don't always have as much reflection time. But I think that whole process really helped me to remove my ego. And I think that's absolutely critical, Jen. The, the students in the class, they, they want to learn about the topic. That's why they're there. That they're and they're really excited about it. Um but if, if the, something isn't resonating with them, maybe it's just a, a little, you know, you can just provide that transition or tweet to help. I, I know I was reading a promotion case recently where the, the faculty member was trying to engage in real life problem solving. So they had a case that the students would work on for two semesters. And it was noted that sometimes the clients who provided the cases would change their mind during the semester and so the students got frustrated at the faculty member because they hadn't defined everything in advance. But that is the whole point of doing this real project is because people are going to change their minds. And so, you know, in some ways you might not be able to satisfy everyone. And your overall, your overall goal might be to, to show the students what it is like and the thought processes they have to put in, how to try to build consensus and, this, you know, this project you have been working on might explode and be a disaster with what you had hoped it would be from the beginning. That doesn't mean they're not learning from it, right? Exactly. And, I was just in, in the lab experience, experiments fail most of the time. And one of the hardest things for students to get over, at least initially, and this is something I struggled with a lot in grad school even, is you're on the edge of working on something that is real life. And because you don't know the answer already, it's very likely you're going to fail most of the time. And a lot of students, particularly high achieving students, have never experienced that level of failure continuously. Exactly. <laughs> and I think that is the hardest thing about grad school. I mean, at least for me in my discipline anyway, it's not intellectually, it's actually just dealing with failing and being able to reflect and revise and not take it as a reflection of self-worth. <laughs> like, Great. Yeah. You know, I remember someone sent me a card once that said something like, imagine what you could accomplish if you weren't worried about failure. It's like, right. No, you learn from failure. That's right. <laughs> That's how we learn, right? Is we something we think it's going to work and it doesn't work. And in, in some ways, I think it's exacerbated in the class, in the laboratory setting, as you're saying, because when you take that first chemistry class or first physics class, it's just you follow the steps. Yeah. And then you get the answer and and you, there's the failure isn't there, right? Because this it's has cooking, been so not fun research. Too. Yeah, right, exactly. Because <laughs> yeah. you, the person who set that experiment up, knows that you will be able to complete it within the allotted time, and that is a that was a really big jump. And I think that's a jump that um, the students don't necessarily understand at first. Yeah. And it's uncomfortable, and it's unusual, and it's hard when you want to succeed. 
to see failure instead. Right. If I could pivot just a little bit, and you mentioned this when you were describing what drew you into structural engineering. You are a provost of a major institution, and and I think it'd be fair to say that higher education leadership is still a largely male-dominated space. What is it like to be a woman in your position? So that's a great question, and I don't think about it a lot, right? I think about what do I need to do to get the job done? So as a department chair, I was the first I was the first woman department chair in the Cockle School of Engineering. I was the first woman to serve as dean. So I got all those firsts out of the way. I'm not the first woman to serve as provost. So it's like, okay, this is easy, right? (laughs) We've seen many, there have been many women to serve in this role as provost. So I'm not breaking new territory here. I also think that, you know, it's, it's how do you treat people is what's most important. And if you can establish a good working relationship with people, I, um, at least right now, I haven't had any trouble at all. So I'm, I'm very pleased to report that. I appreciate that answer. We were thinking about this question and wondering, you know, is it a calculation? Is it in the front of your mind or, or not? So I appreciate that answer. Yeah, I think, as I mentioned, being the first department, first woman department chair and first woman um, dean, I didn't, the faculty and students You know, that being first wasn't a big issue. I think for some of the alumni, it was different. And so there was some learning curve there, just how to how to relate, how to engage with people. But at least right now, it's it's that certainly is not one of the problems I'm trying to address. Yeah, fair enough. We think about the role model effect in the election of women, for example. And so certainly, as you suggest, each of those firsts demonstrated to other generations that that is possible. And so there is a lot of power in what you have achieved in that work and in being provost for sure. Okay, so we're getting close to the end here. So I want to pivot now to thinking about this idea of reflection and moving forward, as we've talked about before. Thinking about the last year, what as an institution and or maybe just as representing higher education in our country either way what have we gotten right what are we doing well right now so i think we showed how innovative our faculty are i mean they had two weeks to pivot to completely online and they did it and they crushed it right and then the resiliency of our students is they had they especially that um in the spring of 2020 They didn't even get to say goodbye to their friends. They just went home, right? And so I've been so proud of our entire community and how well they responded. And I know it's been frustrated and I know there have been blips and all that, but the overwhelming achievement of showing how um, universities can change. You think of universities as just being these big monoliths and glacial speed in making decisions, but somehow we did it. And I think that's the takeaway we have we have to carry in the, in the pride that it was a lot of people working together, willing to, you know, do all kinds of things. I, I think about especially the, the faculty members with the young kids who they were trying to homeschool their kids at the same time they were trying to teach their students. And it was remarkable what people could accomplish. And we have a lot to be proud of. I appreciate that. And I think in a lot of ways, you know, like the earthquake, I've lived in places that are hurricane prone, for example. 
in those tough times, we see each other maybe just a little bit better. Feel like I see my students a little bit more now, as you suggest, all that we brought as faculty and staff and graduate students to this environment of research and teaching. We just understand these journeys just a little bit better. We saw each other in a more real environment, maybe. And I think the fact that we're now starting to come back together, we appreciate it so much more. I mean, I know I, I, I'm giving a talk later um, today, and it's so much easier to give a talk in person than it is on Zoom. Right. And I, I never would have known that. Yeah. I mean, I never yeah. would have appreciated it. That's interesting. You know, so in addition to what we've got right, I wonder for you, where is that growth area? Where's that sort of edge that you know you're really working on something new there and need to really stretch yourself? Is there a growth area for you? So certainly the growth area is thinking about disciplines beyond engineering. I have spent 60 years <laughs> really being an engineer, and now I'm a representative of the entire university. So I... I'll be honest, books, books that are published in engineering are typically textbooks. We're not a book field. And so I have a whole lot to learn about, about the humanities and, and scholarship. And so I, it's, it's a challenge, but I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I can only imagine, right? The College of Liberal Arts, the College of Fine Arts, each of these communities in some ways governed by different expectations, different norms around scholarship. How do you learn up on that. So I hate um, the promotion and tenure process. It has, I know it has this stigma, but you get to read about all the incredible things that people are doing. And I'm looking forward to, I mean, that, that gives me a really a crash course, right? And seeing what our faculty are doing and the breadth of the, of the creative work and the research that's going on on our campus. I, I know the faculty are going through it, do not enjoy it at all, but I think it is a tremendous learning opportunity for me. That's fantastic. And it, it is such a fun experience to kind of have your mind brought in. Like, you know, when you go in and you go, oh, wait, that's a whole different way of doing something that I hadn't even thought about, you know, and getting exposed to all those new ideas, all those, you know, people doing all this innovative work. And then, you know, I'm thinking about how completely well qualified you are in terms of like what you've already shared with us in terms of the things that you have had to really invest in developing this idea of consensus building taking in a lot of perspectives to make a final decision about something. And, you know, all of these things you've experienced and really worked on and, and developed over the years to now you're in this position where all of this sort of culminates. Another thing I love about this format too, Sharon, is that it gives us an opportunity to see you as a person and not as a title. Yeah, thank you. Right. <laughs> right. So we can start to right. appreciate, you know, all of the experiences and, and expression that you have as a person and, and kind of get to know you better so that when we think about policies and things that have to be done, we recognize that you are in there with your whole self. <laughs> yeah, I'll be honest. I don't think I knew the provost until I was probably a full professor. So <laughs> I would have been a faculty member for a long time before I, knew, I just knew the title. Right. So thank you for giving me the opportunity also to reach out. Thank you. <laughs> That's great. No problem. You know, I wonder if there was anything else you wanted to, to share or think through with us. Actually, I, I just do want to really thank everyone on campus. I mean, we're going through another really stressful time. We're trying to be back in person. We're trying to find ways to keep our community healthy with a lot of constraints that we, we have absolutely no control over. 
And there's just a level of frustration that is going to be there for a while until we can get COVID knocked out. And so I really want to thank everyone for their willingness to focus on on educating our students, because that is our primary goal here. And I know it's it's challenging for for people, and I I just really appreciate what they're doing. So having the opportunity to thank everyone, I appreciate that opportunity. Thank you. Thank you so much. I enjoy that conversation. That was really phenomenal. And I think it just strikes me as an opportunity to see someone as a person and not as a title. I didn't feel as if I was being read a script. That's that was really nice. Yeah, I feel like she was just answering the question as a person. And I think about, you know, I'm I'm serving as an assistant dean right now in a college. And one of the things that was completely enlightening for me is to get better perspective on what our leadership, all of the things that they have to kind of deal with, that when they make decisions, influence their decision, but that maybe I as a faculty member in that scenario would not be aware of. Now I feel so much more sympathetic of the complexity of what they're grappling with. You know, sometimes we have, you know, we do this in daily life with all kinds of people, you know, movie stars, whatever. We kind of see them as a stereotype, as a position, a title, rather than as an entire person. And I love being able to talk to, to Sharon in this way so we can kind of hear, like, what are the things that are important to her? What kinds of things does she think about? Yeah, I liked that part of the conversation of seeing each other for who we are and not our title. And I think about that even, I think COVID gave me a chance to see our students more as individuals and other faculty, right? That, you know, the students for sure are doing scholarship, they're doing their early work, but they're not just students. Many are caretakers in a home or they're workers in order to pay that tuition bill. And I think beginning to see each other a bit more was a really important invitation from that conversation. It also reminded me of another time that we were talking with Provost Wood and she was addressing new faculty and she got a really warm reception in that conversation. And I think in a lot of ways, because she was sharing from her own perspective about what is challenging in navigating these tough decisions. And the more that we can hear from each other and see each other, we begin to appreciate all that has to go into those decisions. And it does make me think then sometimes the value of of connecting, not just through emails, because sometimes I read emails crosswise because I'm not in a good mood. But when I hear when I hear somebody describe why they're making that policy, I can understand Absolutely. it a little bit yeah. better. You know, if you hear in their voice, there's so much information and in just how people say a thing. As we all know from getting an email that maybe we have misinterpreted, I know I've done it. I've done it. <laughs> so it's it's really, uh, it just adds this whole other dimension and, and it, you know, it really opens up, you know, I was thinking about just how we've been operating as a university, you know, through Zoom and as well as in person, just the value of having multiple ways of kind of interacting beyond maybe just an email. Like how else can we communicate with each other? We're now very comfortable with a lot of things. <laughs> And the power of that closing, she said, thank you, right? It's a moment of sort of saying, I see you. I see what you are doing. We were talking about this sort of seeing and hearing each other. That thank you, it goes a long way. Yeah, it does, particularly because it was, uh, you know, what else would you like to communicate? 
And her first thought is thanks for everything that everybody's doing right now. And I think that was powerful for me. I mean, I feel like it's good to take a moment and kind of, you know, we have all been doing some reflection, but sort of just acknowledging the things that we've done, what we've accomplished and taking time out from all the things that are not maybe how we want them to be right now. But just thinking about all of the positive aspects of what we've been through. Yeah, I agree. And I think I'm going to bring that a bit into the classroom, too. Just more opportunities to let the students know I see them. I see their work. Thank you. And to reflect, as you suggest, we've we've been through and still are in a really challenging time. And to name that is important. And I feel like oftentimes in our conversation, we were naming those things. All right. Thank you so much, Stephanie. That was fun. Thanks, Jen. You've been listening to The Other Side of Campus, a production of the Provost Teaching Fellows at the University of Texas at Austin. Our executive producer is Mary Newberger. Our producer is Michelle Daniel. And our music and sound design are by Charlie Harper Music at charlieharpermusic.com. For more information, please visit us online at texasptf.org. We hope you'll join us next time on The Other Side of Campus. Thank you. Look, we are so efficient. I mean, 9.30, done. Debrief, the whole thing. We got all the questions asked. We're good, right? We're naming the thing that we are. <laughs> Please edit out my really garbled first question. My God, whatever. Hopefully we've forgotten about it now. <laughs> we've forgotten it. <laughs>